earlier at the beginning of the service, we can't use our projector screen anymore today because of TV was electrocuted <laughs> last week by FPNL. But in any event, I uh, hope that you'll be able to follow along. If you have a Bible or a phone where you can look up some passages, we're only going to go, and I kind of prepared it this way on purpose, we're only going to go to a, uh, basically one passage in Matthew chapter 8 today. So if you want to turn there, you can follow along almost everything that we're going to say is going to come from just a few verses in the book of Matthew chapter 8. Hopefully that will make it a little bit easier for you to follow along and to do this. You know, I, uh, I've always used video or audio, oh, never mind. I've always used audiovisual aids in preaching for the most part. And they were, we were joking in Bible class, whether it was a chalkboard, whether it was a flannel, didn't use flannel too many times. Uh, only Bill is old enough to remember using flannel too much. I'm just kidding. But I remember seeing it a lot. And sheets, people hung up sheets with stuff on them, you know. And But I've used a, the chalkboard as much as anything, and then a whiteboard. And then I always did, as soon as I could get my hands on an overhead projector, or the overhead projector, I started using those. i got some funny stories about that. And then we switched to these projectors and now TVs. So I've always used those. But I do maintain, if anybody talking about people learning how to preach or teach, this would be true. This would be true for teaching any kind of public speaking. I don't think that people should uh, be able to use, be allowed to use audiovisual aids until after they've learned to speak without them for a while. I think they should, I think you should learn and prepare to speak without audiovisual so that you learn how to communicate. And not just rely on the images that you're showing. And then worry, then people are worried more about the images rather than the content of what's being said. And that's why I try to keep it very simple because I don't want that distraction. But if you can learn to communicate with, I think that most young preachers would benefit from that. So, uh, but trouble is, once you get used to using it, it's all, you can become dependent upon all those things to communicate. And there's some things like a chart, a genealogical chart, I just can't show you. It's hard to communicate that. Anyway, in any event, that's uh, irrelevant to most things. I do want to mention this, even though it's personal. And maybe it's not so personal, I don't know. But but today is, uh, Ju- we don't ever have these. Today is Judy and I's 47th anniversary. So we don't ever have that on a Sunday very often. And um, so, well, uh, it, it's a great thing. It is, especially for Judy. Um, <laughs> And for me, that she hasn't killed me yet. That's mainly, that's mainly my contribution, being the kind of person I am. It's been very difficult for her to live with me and, and so forth. We've had a lot of fun together, and we still laugh at each other all the time. We laugh. And I think, I think humor is a big key to being happily married. It's a, if you cannot laugh at yourself and laugh about everything around you. We we have so many little inside jokes only her and I get, little code words we use that none of you even know what they mean, and we chuckle about them. But but that's just a part of life. Now, now none of that is said uh, to uh, put down or make you feel bad if you haven't been married for 47 years or maybe uh, maybe you've been divorced or, or or widow or widower. None of that's meant to make you feel bad. Some things are not at all together in our control. I don't think even having a good long marriage is altogether in your control. I could have been dead 20 years ago. You know, well, you can't always control that. 
On the other hand, I don't think that it does our society any good to act like short marriages are a good thing and having multiple marriages is a good thing, because it's not. I have to be willing to teach the pattern of the New Testament, which is that it's a lifelong covenant that you make most of the time when you're young, and even if you do it when you're older, that that means something. And I am very grateful something was beyond my control was that that my grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles believed that and they taught me that before I knew anything. So I didn't get the idea myself that I needed to marry somebody and stay married my whole life. I was taught that from the scriptures by these people. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And I saw it modeled before me. Even some of my relatives, they were not altogether happy but they were faithful to one another and tried to learn, tried to love each other. And I admire that greatly. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's what it is. But I don't think that we should let the fact that most people today have shorter marriages deter us from what the scriptures say the ultimate goal is to have before us. And we should teach this our children. So I try to tell young people, I know your parents probably divorced and you've suffered for that. So why don't you be the first one in a while that does something different. Why don't you be the first one? You, you can be the difference. Yes, I know, maybe your family are, 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 are drug addicts, and, but you don't have to be that way. You can be the first. My father was the first in, in, a, in a few generations that give the name Schmidt a good name. He was the first from a broken home. My father had a broken home. In the 1930s, his parents divorced. Unheard of in Catholic families in the 1930s. But there it is. That's what my grandfather was. Never, he never saw him again after a few, he was a few years old and I never met the man. Uh, but he didn't leave much of a legacy for that name. But my father did because he changed the, changed the history, uh, by his faithfulness to my mother. So I'm eternally grateful for those things. And, um, anyway, anyway so. I'm very grateful that God, and if the, if you knew the story, some of you may have heard the story of how Judy and I met and all the circumstances surrounding that. It's an, it's a great story about, I think, about providence and the providence of God at work, how it works in individual lives. And uh, maybe someday I can write that down. Anyway, I want to talk with you this morning briefly about this idea of naming and claiming blessings from God. You ever hear this? People talk about you're supposed, and the, there's preached on the TV and radios. You're supposed to name the blessing you want and then claim it. And once you claim it, God has to give it to you. That's the idea, and He will give it to you if you claim it. And the reason that you don't have what you don't have is because you've never named it and claimed it. And this is common preaching in a lot of circles in the United States and around the world. And I think that idea bleeds over into a lot of stuff I see in different places among Christians that needs to be addressed. And uh, once again, I'm probably, you know, I don't feel that old. I don't, I don't feel as old as I probably look for sure. And I don't feel as old as I am. But I got a feeling that these ideas, some of these ideas that I think from the scriptures, and you, you most of you do too, are so antiquated today. They're so antiquated that uh, I'm almost uh, you know, embarrassed to talk about them. But the idea that we should walk up to God and say, I demand this blessing from you, and all that's good, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, is really a very foreign concept. I read something this week that, that stirred this about a man who, who had struggled with 
a chronic illness for over 12 years, and he was writing a little bit about this idea. And you'd think he'd be the one who might uh, like this idea of naming and claiming a blessing from God. But if you think further, you realize he isn't the one who believes that because he hasn't been healed. I wonder why Paul, the apostle, this is not in the sermon, why he didn't just name and claim the blessing over the thorn in the flesh and get rid of that. The scripture is so full of information that denies the idea that we have a right to go before God and demand whatever we want from him, what we think he should do, that he is under some obligation because we're Christians to do that very thing. That's a denial not only of our nature, but of his nature and of the way that he works in this world. I've come to, I mean to talk more about this perhaps in the future, but I re, I've realized, uh, I think I mentioned on the radio this morning, I, I realized in the most of my life I've had a very uh, direct belief in the providence of God. I just mentioned, I guess, a moment ago about providence, but I've always, uh, and I think some of the stuff, things that I do or don't do, some of the things that you might find fault with me about, about the way I approach problems or do or don't do certain things. If I was to think about that, and I have been thinking about that in the last few weeks, break that down, I think it's my defense would be that I believe in the providence of God. I believe in doing and saying the best things that you can and that that God works things the way he's going to work them. I don't believe in twisting people's arms about the gospel or anything else. I don't believe in talking them into stuff. I heard my peers say when we were young, trying to be preachers, that that, uh, we were salesmen for the gospel. I denied it then. I rejected it then. I didn't like it, and I reject it today. I am not a salesman for the gospel of Christ. Never will be. And that's the reason I don't sell things. I'm not an Amway salesman. I'm not a used car. I'm not an insurance salesman. I'm not the one you can buy a grave plot from. I'm not going to sell anything. Because I don't want you to get confused as to why I'm talking to you. Good or bad. But I'm not a salesman for the gospel. The gospel doesn't need me. All I can do is show you something, talk to you about something, read, point you to the scriptures. And then the seed falls where it will. The parable of the sower partly is a parable about providence, about the seed falling where it will. And then it's a, not, then it's, then it's also a story about what the soil does in response to the seed that's been sown. And that part is not in the control of the preacher. Not entirely. But let's go and take a look at this idea of faith and of uh, how we're supposed to react to God about naming and claiming. And I do want to say this. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, that he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's a big... Sounds simple, but that's a big statement. But we have to believe that God is who he says he is. That's where people fall down. They don't want to look in the scripture at what the Bible says God is. They make up their own idea of what they think God should be, what God, what they wish God were like, instead of reading in the scripture what God is actually like. So we must believe that he is who he says he is, not who we wish he were or who somebody... Speaking on behalf of the devil says God is. But who is he? And then we must believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God will do what he says he will do toward his people. 
It may not be in our lifetime, may not be in our day, may not be at any time and place that we think he should be, but God will do what he says he's going to do toward his people. And we believe those things about God. Now God is pleased with us. And we have to diligently seek him, not half-heartedly seek him. And there is the problem. But let's go to Matthew 8. Read with me part of it. We're going to break into two pieces. There's two people that Jesus meets in this chapter that I think will will show you clearly the falsehood of this idea of naming and claiming a miracle from God. When he came down from the mountain, it says in verse 1, great multitudes followed him. And behold, in the Bible, this behold isn't just a filler word. It means, oh, look. That's what it literally says. Look, uh, if you're, it's kind of trying to put you there. And of all the things going on, oh, look, look at that. You see that? Look, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was removed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So he told him, go obey the law now. The law says if you're cleansed of leprosy, you go to the priest and you do this. And then the result of that is he could rejoin society. His life was completely altered and he could go back into society, back to his family, back to his home and enjoy life once again. So here he says to him, Lord, in worshiping, falling down before him, knowing who he was, recognizing God as God, he says, if you are willing you can make me clean. Now, the key phrase there, as you can imagine, in this topic is this phrase, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper had been humble. I don't know what he was like before he got leprosy. You don't get born with leprosy very often, at least not in the context that I know of. It's a disease that you catch later from exposure. It takes a long period of time for it to manifest itself, a long period of time for it to actually kill you. It doesn't kill everybody. Today, the leprosy, it's like a lot of these other epidemics and so forth that we've had in ancient history. Uh, leprosy has evolved and devolved over time, and it's not a very serious disease anymore like it once was. Now, we have medicine to treat it, but it doesn't It seem to be anywhere near as harmful to people as it was in Bible times. Destructive, where parts of your face, your ears, your nose lips all fell off your fingers began to fall off your feet fell off and have accompanied by great pain and disfigurement of every kind it's hard to imagine the 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 suffering not just physically but emotionally that lepers faced it was a terrible terrible curse to be upon them but this man had been humbled by that enough i think to say you knew who jesus was if you are willing you can make me clean. I've watched you, Jesus. I've heard about you. You can heal me if you want to. Is that Did he name and claim his blessing? No. Didn't do that. According to these preachers today, he should have walked up to Jesus and says, you're the son of God, I claim healing in your name. And Jesus would have been obligated, like saying abracadabra, punching in the right code on a device, for it to happen. We punch in a code on a device, we expect something to happen in response. We think we can punch in a code to God, and once we claim that blessing, the blessing, the cash is going to follow out the machine. 
God isn't like that at all. We forget sometimes we're dealing with a person, not a, not just a person, not just a human, but we're dealing with a person in God. That's why why we're made in His image because we're like Him in that, and and we don't respond very well to that kind of thing. And neither does God. God is a person. We don't know all of His motivations and thoughts and desires, and we certainly can't even be, we don't even know that of another person, much less the God of Heaven. But if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, that that probably should be enough to convince you right there that he isn't demanding this blessing. And Jesus, you're going to do this because you said you were going to do this and you have all power. You know, there's a lot said about the miracles of Jesus written by people, I should say, that is controversial. And there are different understand. For example, I've heard it said, that Jesus did all of his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably right. Because oftentimes he calls upon the Spirit, and he's obviously he's the Holy Spirit is doing his miracles. And if he comes on the earth and he empties himself, depending on how you define it, Philippians 2, that he emptied himself when he came to the earth, he emptied himself, I think, of the prerogatives of God, he would need the Holy Spirit to do the miracles. Yet on other occasions it appears that the power comes from within him. You know one of the thing. You know one of the miracles regarding Jesus that he did not do that people we think he did raise himself from the dead. That's one he didn't do. He was dead, and he was in the tomb, and God raised him from the dead. And the many other miracles apparently God performed them. He gives, doesn't he tell you that my Father gives me all the works that I do? What you're seeing in me is the works of my Father. He's telling you that he's not doing this of his own volition or power, and yet we know that he could. So there's some differences there, depending on the text you're looking at, as to the source of Jesus' miracles. And I think that's probably something, something to do with this. You can do this, but he was not only, he was not acting on his own behalf, in his own interest, all these times. And, and we know that today that's the case. We think that our problem is the most serious one, and it may be to us. But, God has a bigger picture in mind. So what providence and the world is so interconnected that if he changes one thing, then all of it begins to change. If my wife's natural mother had not died when she was 11, there, there is probably not much chance at all that I would have ever met her. We wouldn't have had any contact with each other. There's a really good chance of that. If my father's father had not left him when he was four or five years old, I don't think there's any chance my father would have ever become a Christian. You just have to know the story. Couldn't have happened. Now, God can make a lot of other things happen, but given the natural course of events as they unfold and as they were likely to unfold, at the time, those are terrible events, terrible things that happened, life-changing, altering things that brought pain and suffering, and yet it turns out, in providence, to be something different. So when you pray that God would heal you or heal a relative of yours, you need to do so with some degree of humility. For one, you don't get to claim and claim something, but you can say, if you're willing, God, do this. And God, when he looks at that, is going to take your request and put it through all that he knows, all that he's planning on doing, and sometimes he says no. You know, people say, I, I don't, uh, 
I believe, what is it? I believe in unanswered prayer. I don't believe in unanswered prayer. Well, let me just say something. I, I forgot the name of the song now. Randy Travis sung it, so it probably wasn't much interest to me. Does he say he doesn't believe in unanswered prayer? No, I'm confused. I'm going to tell you this way. Put this to you this way. No is an answer. My children ask for an answer, and if I say no, that's an answer. It isn't. I don't, saying yes is not the only answer. God can say no, and he does say no. What I have to know if I know who God is and know that he will diligently reward those, he will reward those who diligently seek him, that when God says no, I'll say okay. I might ask you ten more times, God, but just so you know, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper recognized that, and, and God was willing in this case to say yes. Jesus said, I'm willing. Now, the miracles of Jesus, though, that Jesus performed these lepers are the people. Something else you got to remember, in the, this could be a sermon about the broader understanding of the nature of miracles and so forth. But the thing that we often forget is the miracles of Jesus, even those including demons and so forth, were particularly special for a particularly special period of time. They were for that period of time to show Jesus as who he really was. The demons were released. They weren't before Christ. They aren't after Christ. They were released at that time so that Christ could show his power over the devil in a very vivid way so we could see that his real power was being displayed. The power of God was being displayed. These miracles were done not just so that people's suffering would be relieved. Even though it says about some that Jesus had compassion on him, that miracle, even though Jesus had compassion, was not done just to relieve that person's suffering. Or else Jesus was very, very, very selective because there were a lot of people at that pool crippled, wanting to get relief from being crippled and hurt, and only one was healed when Peter came through that. Jesus was very selective in who he healed. And so we can't say these miracles were done just because God... And yet we project this onto us, that each one of us, with our requests, that God is under some obligation to... Help us. Now, you go a little further into this text. Now, when Jesus, in verse 5, now when Jesus had come to Capernaum, Kephor Nahum, this city is named after Nahum the prophet. And it's called the town of Jesus. Isn't that what they have over the sign on uh, Capernaum, the village of Jesus? I think there's a sign. Is that right? Right over the place. I got a picture of me and Judy there. Right over this city, Kephor Nahum. And you go in there. It's interesting, very interesting little village to place today. Of course, it's a tourist trap, partly. But when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Centurion is a Roman soldier. They're the backbone of the Roman army, a leader of a hundred men. And let me just tell you something. You didn't get to be a centurion just because you showed up for during the service. This was a special rank. It was a high rank. Not the highest, but a high rank. An important rank in the Roman army. The Roman army was built around the centurions. And they had a reputation, generally speaking, of being pretty reliable, solid men. In, historically. They didn't, they didn't like immoral, godless men with lack of self-control to be centurions. They didn't stay there very long. So, the, we meet several centurions in the Bible, Cornelius being one, who proved this to be true, that they were generally upstanding people that weren't just necessarily cruel and dishonorable. 
But a centurion came to Jesus. A centurion, a Roman citizen, a Gentile, comes to Jesus, and most likely a Gentile, comes to Jesus and this Jewish man. He had been around Pharisees, perhaps. He had been around other people, other important Jews. It would have been obvious to this centurion that Jesus was not a Jewish official of some kind. He was not an important elected official that he had to cater to, that he had to please. This is just an ordinary Jew. But he came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. A couple odd things. I know we're going to get too long here about this, but a couple odd things. You know, we had this picture of service and servitude or slavery even the Roman Empire, as being this, everybody's chained to the bottom of a galley ship, being beaten and tortured all the time. And it it wasn't like that at all. That existed, but it wasn't like that at all. Here is a centurion who has a slave, and he's going to find this Jewish healer to help his slave. He cared about this man. He cared enough about this servant of his as a human being, to say, I got to get him some help. Oh, well, he was just thinking of the capital gains loss he would suffer if he died. Perhaps. That, you know, my dad was so happy when my brother David was born in the afternoon of December 31st, 1954, because he got a tax, a $250 tax exemption. And my mother said he was worried sick he was going to miss that $250 that year if, off his taxes if he my brother had been born a little bit later, so he's kind of hurried my mom along, you know. Do you really think that's all he cares about my brother David? All he ever cares because he got a tax deduction? No, of course not. Yes, it might have been a loss for this man if his servant had died, but I don't think that that's not anywhere in this context. This man is paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. He's suffering. I need you to help him. I can't help him. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Verse 5, now when Jesus had entered, sorry, I did the wrong thing. He says, did I leave out some verses? I sure did. Where's my Bible? (laughs) Yeah, and I I left it out of my uh, digital, uh, digital service. Hang on, let me make sure I'm reading it correctly to you. I can... I can memorize, I got it memorized more or less, but my brain is uh, not functioning well. And I went to the wrong chapter. I hate computers, especially when I can't even see. If only I had some glasses. That's all. If only I had some glasses that I could put on to see this better. I wonder where they are. <laughs> the other day, the other day, seriously, I thought for sure I had lost my reading glasses, which I've had to have because of this scratched cornea. I thought I lost them. I'm looking everywhere for these glasses. I even went back. I, I had been at somebody's house. I went back and looked in the yard where I was. I thought I dropped them there. I went back in my house looking around in the grass for these glasses. Couldn't find them. Broke out another old pair that I had and so forth, and I, f- I don't know what happened. I found another pair. Finally, I go and go in the bathroom or something, and guess where they were? On your head. Right there, hanging on my neck. 
I had a pair, oh, I had the other pair on my head. So I had a pair on my head and a pair here, and I'm still struggling to see. So anyway, <laughs> oh, stupid. Why can't I find? What what in the world? Oh yeah, I just it's this thing is just not. It's got one of those. I hate this new program I'm having to use because it it's got a drop down menu for all this stuff, and you have to have actually working fingers for drop down menus to work. All right. It, the centurion comes and says he's dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Uh, this sounds just like somebody who's going to come and name and claim a blessing, doesn't it? I'm not worthy. Come, don't, don't even, don't, I, I, I'm a, not worthy. Not the way the Pentecostal preachers preach it. You name and claim your blessing from God and demand it from God. In fact, what they say is, you literally, you give God an assignment. It's your job to give God an assignment. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that that's what's being taught to people? And people are, amen, bro! And they get so excited over this kind of preaching. I'm sorry, but that should be rejected. I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. In other words, I understand what it means to be a man who has power, and you have power, is what he's saying. And you don't need to come to my house. You can do what you need to do where you're standing. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I will say to you that many will come from the east and the west that sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that very same hour. That's how I know this man was a Gentile because he compares him to Israel and says, not even in Israel did I find this faith. And there's going to be many people like him coming from the east and west, come into the kingdom, and they put to shame those who are already here, uh, descendants of Abraham, because of their faith. So this centurion did not have the idea that God owed him a blessing that he ought to give him whatever he wanted to have. He said, if you're willing, yes, like the leper, you can... You can heal my servant. And he said, I don't have to have you even come into my house. I know the scriptures say in the book of Hebrews that we should approach the throne of God with boldness. But boldness doesn't mean brashness or arrogance. It doesn't mean demanding a blessing from God. It means understanding that sometimes what we're considering to be a curse Number one, may actually be a blessing. And means understanding that God has bigger things at his, in his purview than what we may understand. Some of the suffering that some of my relatives suffered in their lifetime actually worked out to my benefit. Who's to say that's not why it was done that way? Who's to say that maybe they suffered this so that 
their children, my children and grandchildren could be blessed. I, I believe that's possibly true. The suffering, uh, my grand, my grandmother, as a young girl, was sent with her sister, who her younger sister, to a village, a neighboring village, for a, a week or two for some reason, maybe summer vacation. I don't know what, you know, kids not being in school. While she was gone, and they were not rich people, they were living in some peasant village in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. While she was gone, the two sisters in the middle caught scarlet fever and died. And they wouldn't let her come home for a while until they sure that she wouldn't get it too. And when they finally got the girls back home, my great-grandfather said, we're not staying in this place. It's got to be better in America. And so they sold everything they had and put it in the trunk and came to this country. Did that have any impact on my life, you think? Not be him meeting my mother, me not being born in Serbia or somewhere else, and all of course it did. But somebody had to suffer a great deal. And those two old people that I only knew my only knew my great grandmother a little bit when I was I remember she had kind of like whiskers on her face and smelled like garlic and you know didn't speak much English, but she gave me suckers when I was a kid. She'd make me come right up, you know, in her little peasant dress. She she was this she was as wide as she was tall, literally, I think. Picture head of her. This is a family tree. And <laughs> and, and, and she's sitting in her chair there at my, when I was a little boy. And uh, she'd motion me over. I'd come up between her legs and she'd grab me and press me against her face. All those whiskers sticking into me, wrinkled up. No teeth. Smelled like garlic. Some funny smells. And I'm, but then she gave me a sucker, so it was all good. <laughs> This is the memory I have of my great-grandmother. That poor woman suffered losing her children in a poor country, suffered leaving all of her relatives, everything she'd known as a woman coming to a strange country, a place she didn't understand. She never did really learn English very well. She tried. Her husband had to go to the factory every day when they got here and worked like a dog, my great-grandfather did. But what a blessing that was to me. My, my grand, Her, her great-grandchildren live better than most people in the world because of that suffering partially that they did. So Jesus tells this man, go your way. I'm going to give you what you want because you believe me. You trust me. What does it mean to believe God? Where faith, as I mentioned before, faith starts with us saying, I believe that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he's going to do. And that's pretty much all you and I have to know about it, isn't it? Really? That's pretty much should be that should be enough for us to trust Jesus. You, you see, men like John the Baptist comes to, to to Jesus, and people were flocking around John the Baptist when he sees Jesus. He says, "I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals." When when Isaiah comes into the presence of God or close to the presence of God, he, he basically almost dies and said, "I'm a man of unclean lips." He wanted God to strike him. Now, when Simon Peter saw who Jesus was with the miracle, he fell down in the boat and said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And yet Jesus was his friend. But when he realized who he really was, he didn't make any demands on him as if he could name and claim that blessing. So this passage, these passages we read in the Bible... Like 
whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you, and all those kind of passages. And there's a lot of those, which we're going to take the time. We're going to stop now, take the time to, to go over those. I don't think they're intending because of these kind of actual stories of how Jesus interacted with people while he was on the earth. I, I don't think they were intending for us to have the idea that we can just say to God, whatever we want to happen, whatever thing we're thinking today that we want to happen, we can ask God, and he's obligated to give it to us, we can approach him any way we want. You know, when my father was alive, my father was a very kind and gentle man. And while he was alive, we interacted, especially his last few years, because he lived with me. We interacted in a different way than we did when I was a child. But I can tell you something. And I think this is, I think this is a lesson that came from God. I did not approach my father just any old way, even though he probably wouldn't have cared because he was such a kind and gentle person. I couldn't talk to my father just any old way. It wasn't in me to do that because he was my father. I could talk to him about anything, and I had—I didn't—I could go to him at any time with anything and say what I needed to say. But I would not just approach him expecting he do whatever I want because I said it, and taking advantage of him because he was my father. We have a father in heaven who offered his own son for us to live. And yet we think somehow it's preaching the gospel of Christ to teach people that they can go name and claim whatever they want and God's going to be under obligation to do that, You can that you can give God an assignment. Not so. I appreciate you listening this morning very much. I want you to think about these two people that we know almost nothing else in the Bible about. They're not even named. And I believe these stories are told just for this very purpose, to show us something about our Heavenly Father and what He wants. We're going to close our service now with a song. What was your song number, Gary? 179. 179. Turn your books there. We're going to sing this song as we close now. And we pray that you'll consider who your Heavenly Father is and your relationship to Him and, and bring your heart right and right to God. With humility, approach His throne. Ask him what you want. Don't be afraid to do that. On the other hand, don't you need to you need to be afraid to approach God as if he's not God. So if we can help you this morning, we'll pray with you. God can forgive a wrong if you've committed one. Or maybe you have a, a really more basic and deeper need this morning to be baptized into Christ and become a child of God. If we can help you with that, everything is ready if you are. Come right down to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.